Well, as I mentioned, we are in this series called uh, Positioned for Change. Uh, we, we believe deeply that the scriptures uh, tell us that Jesus invites us not into a new religion, but into a new way of life uh, through faith in him that uh, looks like a relationship that transforms us from the inside out. And that if we're not experiencing transforming relationship with Jesus, then there is certainly more that he extends and holds out to us. And so what he invites us to do is to position our lives in such a way that we can have that kind of relationship with him. And the truth is a a lot of people who claim the name of Christ live lives that are not positioned to experience relationship with him. And so we're really committing this fall to trying to think deeply about how do we position our lives for transforming relationship with Jesus. And so as a church, we're trying to learn how to structure our life around three overarching positions, formative friendship, sitting with God, and weekly worship. We spent a few weeks already talking about formative friendship, and right now we're in a series of really, it's one message in three parts, looking at weekly worship. Specifically, why do we do this? Now, I wonder if you've ever really stopped to even consider, I know that's a really like simple, basic question, but I wonder if you've ever really sat to think about like, why do we come together and do this? The answer to that question, having one really matters to me. One one thing that I never want to have happen is that we would kind of adopt this posture where we just do things because we do things. I, I grew up in the church, so I've been in a lot of different churches. I've been pastoring in the church for a long time now. And you would not believe the number of times where you might visit a church and you could ask someone, hey, why do we do such and such? And they're like, because ah, it's what we've always done. Like, and that's the only answer. And I think that's a massive fail that we don't understand why we do the things that we do. And so what we're doing is we're spending these three weeks looking at why we worship. Why does this matter for us? Why should this be some, a time that we prioritize being here? And why should we be alert and attentive? Why should we come with expectation? What should our expectation be when we come? And so that's really where we're at. We're talking about why we worship. This is one message in three parts. Last week, uh, we talked about how we worship uh, for our own protection, that it protects our faith in a a number of different ways. And this week, I want to look at this second reason. It's going to be our big idea. So if you're taking notes this morning, you might want to make a note of this. Write this down. Weekly worship wakes me up to a more Jesus-like life. That would be the second reason that we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 10, why we worship. Weekly worship, ideally, wakes me up to a more Jesus-like life. See, when it comes to living a life like Jesus, we all have these areas that I would say, and I even think we see this language in the scriptures, we have these areas where we're, we're kind of asleep meaning we're unconscious or unaware of certain aspects in our lives that are out of step with the way that Jesus has invited us to live in relationship with him. We're asleep to those. We don't see those on our own. And if you think about it, when you're asleep, you need someone or something outside of yourself to help wake you up, right? Like that's why we set an alarm because you might have like a bad dream that startles you awake, but no one has like the cognitive ability to be asleep and at rest, but also like kind of awake and like tap yourself when it's time to wake up in the morning. We set an alarm because we need someone or something outside of ourselves 
to awaken us from sleep. And the truth is, when it comes to following Jesus, we have these areas in our character, in our attitudes, in our responses relationally, that, that, that as well, we are unaware of where we are living short of the life that Jesus has called us to live up and into. And we need to be awakened by others. We need something outside of ourselves to wake us up. And I was thinking about this this week, and uh, I thought about this time. This was probably like four or five years ago now. I was pastoring in North Carolina, and we worked uh, with this coaching group called the Flippin' Group, uh, which is not a great name. It's his last name, I guess, the guy that started it. His name, no joke, is Flip Flippin', which is a sign your parents just hated you. uh, Because who... Who has the last name Flippin and also names their kid Flip? No lie, the guy's name is Flip Flippin. Google it, I'm not lying. So anyways, the Flippin Group, so they have this assessment that you take and it's this tool uh, that is supposed to help you grow in your own self-awareness. Specifically to have an an understanding of kind of like two things, uh, of how you perceive yourself, but then one of the things that's unique about the flipping assessment versus like some of the other things like maybe strength finders or something like that is that you also have to ask six other people in your life to take this assessment about you as well. You better hope it does suck. You better hope your friends like you choose wisely, but they're also very specific. You are supposed to choose like a friend. You're supposed to choose someone who has worked for you or reported to you, someone that you have reported to in the past. So you're trying to get this like good mixture of relationships, and so you take the assessment, and then they take the assessment, and then at the end, you are presented with this very long report, and you get to see on this graph where you rated yourself, and then where everyone else rated you as well. Very sobering. Now, I took this, uh, I I think generally speaking, I think most of the people in my life who know me would would say I'm a pretty self-aware person, so I took this assessment thinking there's not gonna be like massive disparity between my perception and the perception of, of the people in my life that I'm asking to take this. So I get the results back, and by and large, that's what I found. There was pretty good alignment. My perception of myself was very similar to the perception of these other people in my life, with the exception of one area. There's a category called the need to nurture. And I have to tell you, if I could have rated myself off the chart, I would have. I was like, it's a scale of one to 10. I think I had myself at like a 10. The problem is, because I felt like in my, like, so when I, at the time, uh, I had this conception of nurturing that I felt like, man, when when the people in my life go through a crisis, I am there. And I think the people in my life would attest to that. When they've been in crisis, I've been there. The The problem is that's crisis management, not nurturing. And so I get the results back from this test and I'm like, I am a 10 on my need to nurture. No one else rated me over a two. I had some awkward conversations with the people I am. Tyler was one of them. So I remember calling him into my office and sitting down with the assessment out, knowing, I don't know which one he is, but I knew he was one of them. And I said, can you, can you believe this? This thing says I have a, I have a low need to nurture. And he was just like, are you the only one that is just now learning this? So thankfully, I, through a lot of therapy and hard work, I, I think that that's an area that I'm growing. But that's kind of like, that's what I'm talking about. We all have these areas. You can call them blind spots. You can call them areas where you lack awareness or consciousness of 
of, of where you are, where your perception of where you are might be different than reality. And when that is the case, we need someone or something outside of ourselves to awaken us to the reality of who and where we actually are. And that, I think we see in Hebrews chapter 10, is one reason why it's important for us to gather together, not just here on Sunday mornings, but certainly a critical reason that we gather together for worship on Sunday mornings. And so I want to call this message this morning, Wake Me Up, because that's what we're after in one another's lives. So again, why don't you turn your attention back to Hebrews chapter 10, if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on, go to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, I just want to read verses 24 and 25 again. Again, this is where we were last week. It's where we are today. It's where we'll be next week. But the writer of Hebrews says this, and let us watch out for one another. That's what we talked about last week. So listen to this, to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. So again, not neglecting to gather together is kind of this phrase right in the middle of these two verses that's really critical to understanding the whole. These three reasons hang on this theme of togetherness. We have been created by God for togetherness, for community, for relationship. Christian, non-Christian, all research would show no one thrives in isolation. There's a reason that we put people into solitary confinement as a punishment. It's because it does severe damage to the human psyche. We are not created in such a way that we thrive isolated from meaningful relationship with other people. And so Hebrews 10 is calling us to togetherness in general, but specifically in the context of this weekly gathering, again, that Christians have been doing now dating back 2,000 years, gathering together on Sunday morning to remember Jesus' first resurrection on that first Easter and all of its implications for us moving forward. We gather together for that every single week. We are called to be together. And again, in these verses, we see these three, re re these three reasons we gather. One is to protect our faith. We talked about that last week. So if you missed that, uh, you can find the podcast or the stream online. Another reason we're going to look at next week is we gather together for encouragement, which I feel like if there's one thing that we need in the wake of the last couple of years, it's a boatload of encouragement. Now, you know what now is a really good time for? A lot of critical feedback in one another's lives. Let's just bring a lot. You know what I don't like about you over the last two years? Let's have lots of those conversations. No, we need encouragement. And then as I want to look at this morning, we are meant to gather together to do something very specific, to provoke love and good works. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that word choice very interesting. To provoke love and good works. Now that word that we translate as provoke, it comes from a Greek word that means the act of stirring up emotions, feelings, and responses. Some other English translations don't use the word provoke. They use the word arouse or stimulate or to stir up. And the word is actually only used one other place in the New Testament, but it is used here in a positive sense, but it can also be used in a negative sense, my guess is when most of us hear the word provoke, we think of it in the negative sense, right? Someone provoking you to anger or irritation or 
So we think about it in a negative sense. And the truth is it's used that way in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, they get into a, the word in English we translate it as a sharp disagreement, but they are provoked because they have this disagreement about whether or not they should take Mark on their next missionary journey. It was such a severe disagreement that Paul and Barnabas actually parted ways and for a season of time did ministry apart from one another. But here in Hebrews, it's used in a positive way. And so there is something about our time together on Sunday mornings that should cause us to leave more surrendered to a Jesus-like life. Because if you think about, and I know we all have probably differing degrees of familiarity with the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, but if you were to summarize, like, like what, what was Jesus about? What did Jesus do? Well, he was about love and good works. He loved and felt compassion toward people. That's like the number one describer of his emotional state toward others throughout all four gospels, that he was filled with compassion toward people. He was loving toward people and he did an immense amount of good works. He taught, he healed, and he delivered people from spiritual oppression. So I would think about these two things as like, it's a summary of what it looks like to live a Jesus-like life, a life committed to love and good works. There's something about when we gather together like this, that when we go out those doors and go back to the rest of our lives, we should be more inspired, more determined, more surrendered to living a more Jesus-like life. And the question is, how, how, do we, how do we do that? How should we think about that? Well, I got a couple of things that really jumped out to me as I was praying and thinking about this this week. So two things you might want to make a note of. The first one is this. Receiving love and good works wakes me up to replicate them in my own life. Hopefully, when we gather together like this on Sundays, we are also being the recipients of love and good works. People are kind to us. People do encourage us. People do ask how we are, and then they actually listen to our response. I, I try to, you know, like I try to never be like, hey, how was your week as you're walking in on Sunday morning? Because not great is usually the answer, and we don't really have time on the steps outside to have an in-depth conversation about it. But in relationship with one another, as we step into the open and maybe we do have some conversations about some things that are going on, hopefully, hopefully not always because we're all imperfect people, but hopefully we're going to be the recipients of love and some kind of good works in our lives. And there's something about experiencing that and receiving it that wakes us up to want to replicate that in our own lives when we experience it for ourselves. When we experience love and good works, we long to replicate it. And I don't know if you've noticed this about you, but I've noticed a tendency in my life, I don't think it's unique to me, but I, I usually want to replicate the characteristics of those that I spend the most time with. So you'll notice how a lot of the times like really close friends tend to talk similar, maybe even dress similar, tend to think a lot alike. Not, not, no one agrees on everything, but just in general, there's going to be like some unifying factors. We tend to replicate those that we spend the most time around. And I, I think about this in the context of the church. Uh, the first church as an adult that I was really a part of, I joined a, a core group when I was 18 years old. Uh, in a church plant in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. It's called Northwest Family Church. And uh, even though I'd grown up in the church my whole life, I experienced something 
culturally as a part of this core group that I'd never experienced before. I just noticed with every single person who was a part of this early team, there was this constant intentional pattern of investing relationally into the lives of people who didn't go to church anywhere and for all intents and purposes didn't really have a relationship with Jesus, non-religious, non-spiritual people. There was this pattern of these followers of Jesus that I was spending time with investing in relationships like that. Now, I understand even in saying that, that that's the ideal and the goal for every follower of Jesus. But if you've been a Christian and in a church for more than like two days, you know that what happens most often is the longer a person follows Jesus, the less friends they have who don't. And it's sad and problematic because the truth is, as Jesus transforms our lives, the more we should work to cultivate relationship with people who don't know Jesus. But most of the churches that I grew up in, I don't remember seeing that. I don't remember that being something that was stressed or modeled in, in, in really any way. But in this church, it was just crazy, man. They were, everybody had these really meaningful, and they actually, it wasn't just like, I'm trying to be like nice enough just to invite this person to church. They weren't just driving through drive-throughs and like dropping that track in that looks like a $20 bill, but you open it and it's the way of salvation. And then a non-Christian reads it and they're just mad they didn't get tipped, so they hate God and you more than before. I used to work at Starbucks. We got that in the drive-through all the time. I got to tell you, I was not fired up about that. And I'm a Christian. I was like, I hate you. By and large, the longer we walk with God, the less we have a relationship with people who don't. But it was so different in this place. And as a result of that, that radically changed my behavior. As I saw this, and I was the recipient of this, I had a deep longing to replicate this in return. There was no seminar. There was no even sermon that I remember about this is how you should do this and why. There was no book I was told to read. It was just modeled. I had been the recipient of it. I saw it happening all around me all the time, and I wanted to replicate that in my life. And the truth is, we, we should, in just our interactions with one another on Sunday morning, hopefully we are going to be recipients of love. I mean, I, I genuinely hope that even as you come up the sidewalk and you walk in to this building, that as people smile at you and say hello to you and you see who you know and shake hands or hug, because we can do that again, which is nice, that you would feel love. That you would feel like these people actually do want me to be here. No church is perfect, but there is a true desire for you to be here. So I would hope that as we interact with one another, we would be recipients of this, of this love that we are called to replicate as well. I've, I've experienced that. I had a couple of months ago, I was getting, I don't even remember what series we were in, but I knew I was getting ready to teach on something uh, that has the, it seems like everything does right now. But I knew going into it, like, there's the possibility this is going to be slightly controversial. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot in the Bible that currently is very controversial. And, uh, and, uh, and I really care. I mean, I'm never, never afraid to teach on things that are controversial as long as I feel like here's what the Bible says. But I, I do always care that I, I want to try to teach in a way that, that not just what's being said, but how it's being said is faithful as well. And so I was pretty anxious this morning, that, that particular morning. And I was, got here and I was kind of making my rounds, saying hello to everybody who was serving. And I went upstairs and Denise and Noel and Newborn were serving up there. And they said, how you doing? And I, I opened up about, I'm a little nervous about this and here's why. 
and, and I was the recipient of love. They stopped what they were doing, and they were present with me, and they were very patient in their listening. And then as I was done, they both laid hands on my shoulders and they prayed for my peace moving forward. And, and clearly, that made a significant mark on me because I'm still telling you about it. And so my hope and my prayer when we come together like this is that we will be the recipients of love and good works in some way and that that will mark us and shape us in some way that we will leave this place and want to do the same. Does that make sense? Here's a second thing I want you to make note of though. Number two, being provoked to love and good works will often disrupt our comfort. Being provoked to love and good works will often disrupt our comfort. I still don't think that we should ignore that the word choice that the author of Hebrews used was the word provoke. Because I think, like, on the one hand, if you listen to what I just said, it, it has this kind of, like, warm and fluffy, cotton candy, unicorny kind of vibe where it's just like, we're all just love and it feels so good and comfortable and and I leave feeling like I'm on cloud nine. And the truth is sometimes being provoked to love and good works does not always feel like that. Because well, oftentimes what happens, like, so we come here and let's just think about it like in this, in teaching, okay? So over and over again, we come here, we open the scriptures together and over and over again, we see these examples from Jesus, from somewhere else in the scriptures of what it looks like to live a Jesus-like life that's held up for us in teaching over and over and over and over again. And then we are invited to live up and into that way of life, these lives of love and good works. But think about the fact that love, biblically, by definition, and good works, certainly, they demand the death to self. Love, by definition, is foregoing one's own rights, foregoing one's own comfort, foregoing, foregoing one's own convenience, for the good of another person. And so being provoked to love and good works doesn't always feel awesome because sometimes it rubs up against our comfort and our convenience. And so it really matters that we learn how to respond appropriately in a healthy way when we feel when something that is, that is in an attempt to provoke us to love good and good works, when it provokes something inside of us, we're like, I don't love the way that feels. Sometimes we might use the word conviction. Sometimes we don't think clearly about conviction and guilt. There's never an intent to like guilt anyone here ever. But there is an, an, an intent and a desire to hold up the example of Jesus and go, this is what we're after. And so what we're going to find over and over again is that we fall short of that. And so the question is, when we feel like something inside of us has been rubbed, where we're like, I don't, I don't love that, or that feels uncomfortable to me. How do we respond when we are disrupted? Because can I just tell you, here, here's what I'm seeing more and more and more, and I think this is one of the dangers of, of how um, polarized we are as a culture. By and large, what's happening right now is when someone hears something that rubs them the wrong way, their response is to bounce. And they're going to try to go find another church that only preaches things to them that they already think and agree with. And I don't, I mean, that's just not a great way to grow. It's also not a biblical way to steward relationship. 
But that tends to be the pattern right now. Someone hears something that rubs them the wrong way that they disagree with and they just leave. And so the question is, if that's not a great way to steward relationship and to respond when we are disrupted, then how should we respond? So I just made a a quick list of three things that I want to make a note of, and then uh, we're going to close with this, all right? So the first one, I want you to ask yourself three questions. When you're sitting here, maybe you have an interaction with someone, maybe you hear something in a message that you're like, that rubbed me the wrong way. Three questions to ask yourself, all right? Number one, where have I been disrupted? Where have I been disrupted? Like, where does this, where does this rub me the wrong way? Is it something to do with my ego? Is it something to do with my comfort? Is this calling me out of my convenience and maybe my preferences? Where am I feeling disrupted in the midst of this? Um, Another place that you might be disrupted at some point is in your conscience, where, where something, you hear something said, like sometimes, the read, like, I don't listen to a ton of preaching uh, anymore. I used to listen to podcasts constantly, and I just, I read books now. Um, so I don't listen to a ton of sermons anymore, but I follow a lot of pastors online, and every once in a while, I will see, like, a, a sermon clip or something that's shared, or I will read something in a book that disrupts something inside of me. And sometimes what it disrupts is I have this response where I'm like, well, that's not true. And I think that's an important thing to be discerning of. We should not be the type of people that just because someone says something to us with a Bible open, we immediately receive it as true. Sometimes stuff gets said from pulpits all over this country that is not true. And so we need to be discerning and we need to use Scripture as the lens through which we discern something that is being said to us. So first we want to ask the question, where have I been disrupted? What is it in me that has been disrupted? Secondly. Ask yourself the why question. Well, why? Why am I disrupted? And the point of these questions is to learn to live a more reflective life. So much of life we walk through with absolutely zero reflection. And so we experience things, we feel things, and we don't either acknowledge it, we're not aware of it, we never ask ourselves, well, why am I triggered by this? Why am I feeling so hurt or sad or angry or tormented or whatever it might be. Why am I being disrupted? Maybe it's something that happened in the past. Like there's some things in my life, I've I've experienced some bad teaching in the past um, or the way that it was taught was unhealthy, unbiblical. And so even if something that I've heard at some point that I believe to be biblically true, it was taught in such a way or it was a part of a season in my life that was so painful, I have a hard time even like hearing about it at this point in my life. Like there's even some worship songs I have a hard time listening to because of the church that I was in when we used to sing that song. And so maybe it's something like, maybe I'm being triggered because of something that happened in my past. Or maybe it's my pride. I find at least in my own life, nine times out of 10, when I'm disrupted, it's my pride, my ego that has been disrupted. So where have I been disrupted? Why am I feeling disrupted? And then This is really, really important. Thirdly, how can I best respond for healing? How can I best respond for healing? Every single one of us, I feel like the older I get, the more aware of this I become. Every one of us is on a healing journey. That as we walk with Jesus, that is the primary thing that he is doing in our lives. 
God is referred to as the great physician in the scriptures. And the reason for that is that we all live with wounds and we are on this journey of being healed. And how we respond when we are disrupted will determine its effect. And so if we hear something and it disrupts us, the, the, and we respond with the, the, the right response, which is a soft heart, again, this is provided that what is being said to us is not heresy and untrue but it's just something that's challenging us or rubs us the wrong way and it requires stretch and growth and transition and change in our lives. If we respond to that rightly with a soft heart, it's gonna deepen our relationship with God. It will deepen our relationship with ourselves and it will deepen our relationships with one another. But if we respond to that disruption incorrectly with a hard heart, as we see so constantly, especially throughout the Old Testament, Israel just always responding with a hard heart to what it is that God's saying, then it's going to more deeply entrench us in this old way of life. And so when we come into this place week after week after week after week after week, as we come through those doors, one of the things I would argue that we should pray every single time we cross that threshold is, Holy Spirit, soften my heart for what it is that you want to say to me. Because a hard heart is always opposed to what it is that God wants to say. And so even if the intention is to provoke us to love and good works, we will often reject it or be unable to receive it because of our hard hearts. And so let's pray for soft hearts that can be awakened every week to a more Jesus-like life. Let's pray that, and then we'll do some Q&A, all right? Father, I thank you again, that you are a speaking God. And I thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through your word, that you speak to us through one another, that you speak to us through teaching like this. And Lord, we, we want to, to have hearts that are soft so that we can be provoked to love and good work, so that we can be provoked that we can be invited into a more Jesus-like life. Ultimately, Lord, that's what we want in our relationship with you, in our relationship with one another. We want to be more and more transformed into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, we have to have hearts that are positioned for that. And so I pray that you would do the work that only you can do inside of us. That you would help us to be open and responsive, humble, with a deep longing to know you more. Lord, I pray that you would make our gatherings a time of being provoked to love and to good works. In Jesus' name, amen.